You may open your Bibles this morning to Ephesians chapter 6. Ephesians chapter 6, where we want to take up our apostles' instructions to the Gentile churches of how they were to live in this world. We began this morning by reading Peter's exhortation to the Jews that they were strangers and pilgrims in the earth and that they ought to live in such a way that they would shut the mouths of the Gentiles and that those Gentiles would glorify God for their conduct. I hope that you can come before the Word of God with a humble spirit and want to hear it and want to submit yourself to it. The Bible says in Isaiah 66, verses 1 and 2, that the high and lofty God who makes the earth His footstool approaches those men that tremble before His Word. We're going to have His Word affecting your life in just a moment because it's going to describe how you ought to work on the job. And some jobs aren't as pleasant as other jobs and some bosses aren't as kind and merciful and generous as other bosses. But the Lord doesn't really care. He expects you to act in a certain way anyway. And he all he teaches so far on this point that he says in 1 Peter chapter 2 that when you've got an unruly and a froward and a perverse boss, that's the only occasion you can ever have to really do something meaningful to him. You can never serve a good and gentle boss like you can serve a froward and obnoxious one. So if you've got a tough boss, thank the Lord. You have an opportunity to proclaim the true religion of Jesus Christ. Can't do it with a good boss. Not in the same way that you can do it with a bad one. Will you humble yourself this morning before the Word of God? I want to start in another place. I want to read you just a few words. On Saturday, you could have, or or you should have, read 1 Samuel 3. Samuel's just a little guy. And in the night, he hears his name called twice. Samuel! Samuel! Samuel thinks it's Eli calling him. The high priest that he was serving. So he runs into... Eli and says, here am I, thou callest for me. He ran. What a lesson in that. He ran to Eli. Now, if you were asleep in bed and you heard someone calling you, I know how some of you react. Some of you live at my address. You don't like to have your name called when you're comfortable in bed. But Eli, I mean, Samuel ran. To Eli, not once, not twice, but three times. And eventually Eli understood that God was calling Samuel, and so he gave him this advice. Go back and lie down. When you hear your name called the next time, say these words. Speak, Lord, for thy servant heareth. I want every single one of you, and I want me. To say those words right now in our heart. So that we might be as great as Samuel. Samuel grew in favor with God and men. 
He was a great man. And it started out when he was a young boy with this lesson from Eli. Speak, Lord, for thy servant heareth. And what a message he got, brethren. He got a message that God was going to crush his master into oblivion for not crushing his sons. But that's a lesson that you were supposed to have gotten yesterday from another reading. Speak, Lord, for thy servant heareth. Let's look at Ephesians 6. And I'm going to read to you verses 5 through 8. Servants, be obedient to them that are your masters according to the flesh, with fear and trembling, in singleness of your heart, as unto Christ, not with eye service as men pleasers, but as the servants of Christ, doing the will of God from the heart, with good will doing service as to the Lord and not to men, knowing that whatsoever good thing any man doeth, the same shall he receive of the Lord, whether he be bond or free. Amen and amen. This is the word of the Lord. I am so excited about this passage. Now, I hope I get excited about most passages, but I need you to be excited. Because the Lord is speaking to us, and we as His servants want to hear what He has to say to us. Your performance on the job is viewed by others in the world and gives a testimony of Jesus Christ more than all your other activities combined. Because that is where the world sees you is on the job. And it is emphasized in the New Testament. It is so discouraging and frustrating to see most churches emphasizing things that aren't even taught in the epistles of Paul. And neglecting this. You know, in most churches, you could be a member of a labor union by choice. You could participate in the anarchic activities of a labor union and nothing would be said. In fact, in so many churches in this country, they think that labor unions are a gift from heaven. And we stand opposed to that because we stand in the Word of God. You can be a living witness of the Lord Jesus Christ By the way you conduct yourself on the job. The way you work, the way you treat your boss. And so the Bible is going to address that right here. And I've just read those four verses in your hearing. However, I feel the need for you to realize how much this is emphasized in the New Testament. You do not have a right to work the way you feel like. The only right that you slaves have, and you are what the Bible would call free servants. That's what it means at the end of verse 8 when it says, whether he be bond or free. None of you are bond servants or slaves. You are free servants, meaning we call them employees. You have one right. One right. To quit. With an appropriate notice. That's it. You have no other rights. You have responsibilities and duties. And those things aren't taught anymore. Everyone wants to jump on a soapbox and bang away 
and Yellowway about rights. Rights and rights. The Bible doesn't tell us about rights. The Bible tells us about responsibilities and duties. I want you to see how much it's emphasized. Now, this is Ephesians 6, and this is where we'll look at it this morning. But flip over a few pages to Colossians 3. Remember, I've told you that Colossians is the fraternal twin epistle to Ephesians. If you read the one, you ought to read the other because they're very similar and they'll help explain one another. The wording is a little different. By the Holy Spirit, so that we can compare spiritual things with spiritual and get light without looking at a commentary or anything else. We just read the Word of God. Colossians 3, verse 22. Servants, obey in all things your masters according to the flesh, not with eye service as men pleasers, but in singleness of heart, fearing God. And whatsoever ye do, do it heartily as to the Lord and not unto men knowing that of the Lord ye shall receive the reward of the inheritance. For ye serve the Lord Christ. But he that doeth wrong shall receive for the wrong which he hath done, and there is no respect of persons. God does not care about your employment position. He doesn't care if you're a bond slave, a free servant, an employee, or a master. As we're going to see before we finish. He expects you to do what you are told to do as unto Him and to do it heartily. And notice that it says here, Servants, obey in all things your masters. In verse 22. To do it in singleness of heart. One heart, one motive should drive you at work and it's to please the Lord God. You should not get pleasing God and pleasing your boss confused. You should be doing it with one heart. And you should do it heartily, which means to do it with passion. To do it with fervency, to do it with zeal, to please the Lord Jesus Christ. That's how you ought to work. The wise man wrote, whatsoever thy hand findeth to do, do it with thy might. Why would you want to do it with anything less? A job well done is its own reward. There is not only emotional and mental benefits from working hard, There's spiritual benefits from working hard because you know you're serving the Lord Christ with the utmost of your ability. There's physical blessings of released endorphins in your bloodstream from working hard. There is joy in working hard in a job well done. And we ought to do that to the Lord and the the working servants ought to remember in verse 24 that of the Lord you're going to receive an eternal inheritance. That is a pretty big paycheck. It is disgusting to see people so conscious of a little tiny paycheck given in this world of a few dollars and cents. That you buy a couple gallons of milk and a few dozen eggs and it's gone. When you've got an eternal inheritance coming, that's the big paycheck. That's the big payday and that's the big paymaster. It's the Lord of glory. And in verse 25 it says, But he that doeth wrong shall receive for the wrong which he hath done. And there is no respect of persons. God will not only reward the hard worker in verse 24, He'll reward the lazy worker in verse 25. You will not get away with it. While the cat's away, the mice will play. But this master is never away. This is the word of the Lord. This is the gospel of Jesus Christ. 
These are the wholesome words of the Lord Jesus Christ. Come over now to 1 Timothy. 1 Timothy chapter 6. Five times in the epistles. Many more times throughout the Gospels and the Old Testament, we are told how we're supposed to work. You know the book of Proverbs deals with it. We have to read those on a regular basis. 1 Timothy chapter 6. I want you to remember these five places. I want you to get the emphasis from the God of heaven. The Lord Jesus Christ that we just sang about is addressing us. Speak, Lord, for thy servant heareth. We've looked at two places. Here's number three. 1 Timothy 6, 1. Let as many servants as are under the yoke count their own masters worthy of all honor, that the name of God and His doctrine be not blasphemed. And they that have believing masters, let them not despise them because they are brethren, but rather do them service because they are faithful and beloved, partakers of the benefit. These things teach and exhort. I don't need a manual produced by some seminary or a Christian bookstore on what I'm supposed to teach. It tells me right here in the last sentence of verse 2. These things teach and exhort. This is a godly ministry that emphasizes this point right here in verses 1 and 2. Verse 1. As many servants as are under the yoke, they should count their own masters worthy of all honor. All honor, all respect, all reverence, all obedience. That the name of God and His doctrine be not blasphemed. What a disgrace for a Christian to go into the lunchroom or to take a break in his truck and to bow his head and thank the Lord for his food and then on the job bitch and complain about his boss. Bitch and complain about his working conditions. Lay out for a half an hour. Make personal phone calls. Search the internet. When an unbeliever witnesses you praying before your meal and then acting in that way, they have every reason to blaspheme God and His doctrine. Because that is inconsistent hypocrisy. That stinks. And it stinks in the nostrils of a holy God. We should always be remembering that we are supposed to let our good works shine before men. And the way we do it is being consistent. Yes, you should bow your head and pray before you eat. You should bless and thank God for the food that you have to partake of. But then let our conversation, our lifestyle, our work ethic, your work habits, back that up. So that nobody can accuse the Christian religion and the God of Christianity, Jehovah of the Bible and His doctrine to be false. This is the Word of the Lord. And the next verse goes on to say, They that have believing masters, let them petition them so that they no longer have to be servants, but can become partners. Is that what it says? They that have believing masters, let them not despise them because they are brethren, but rather do them service. Because outside... The legal relationship that we have in Jesus Christ and the practical relationship we have in a church, there are still masters and servants. And that position that God ordained is to be honored. God has made only a few masters in the world. Servants can't be masters. There's a reason. They don't have the ability. 
They don't have God's providential arrangement of putting the master in the position of authority. There are a whole lot more Indians than there are chiefs. That's the way it should be. That's the way God made it. And that's the way God expects it to be maintained by His people. I want you to notice, and what gets, what gets me so excited is this is how we preach to the world. This is how we defend the doctrine of Jesus Christ. It's not handing out tracts while we're on the job. You're stealing from your boss when you hand out a track on the job. You are representing your boss in a way he has not approved of when you hand a track out on the job. Why don't you outwork every unbeliever that works for your boss? That'll say a whole lot more. Right. You can be hard of hearing this morning and hear me well, can't you? I'm excited about this. Amen. This is the Lord telling us how to do our evangelistic work. You can't find a verse in all the epistles of Paul telling you to hand out tracts. He's telling you to be a good husband, to be a good wife, to be a good father, to be a good child, to be a good servant, and in a few minutes, a good master. That is how we defend the doctrine of Jesus Christ. Let's flip over a few pages to Titus chapter 2. Titus 2. What I just showed you in 1 Timothy 6 is number 3 of the 5 passages. And Paul told Timothy, these things... Speak and teach and exhort. This is what your ministry should be based on. Titus chapter 2, verse 9 and 10. Exhort. Remember, this is written to another pastor. This is a pastoral epistle. There's three of them in your New Testament. First and second Timothy and Titus. Written to individual men telling them how to conduct themselves in the ministry. Exhort servants to be obedient unto their own masters. And look at the words. And to please them well in all things. Not answering again. Not purloining. But showing all good fidelity. That they may adorn the doctrine of God our Savior in all things. Amen. Amen. We can adorn the doctrine of the Lord Jesus Christ by the way we work. Every day. You get to be an evangelist. Every day you represent Jesus Christ to the world. They see you on the job more than every other aspect of your life. They don't see your private prayer life. They don't see you in your home with your children. They don't see you in bed with your wife. They don't see you in this church with the rest of the saints. They see you on the job. And they see you 40, 50, 60 or more hours a week. Lord, help us. Get excited, brethren. You can adorn the doctrine of God our Savior. And I'm told, I'm supposed to exhort you to this. Right. I'm told in verse 15, These things speak and exhort and rebuke with all authority. Let no man despise thee. And that's why I'm loud. That's why I'm intense. That's why I want your attention. Are you adorning the doctrine of God your Savior? Right. I'm going to show you how. But it tells us how in a few ways right here. In Titus 2.9. It says to please them well. Do you know what it's like when your wife or your husband or your child does something grudgingly? That does not please you well. In fact, it shouldn't even please you. When someone does something just because they have to, but not because they want to. When they do it because you force them to rather than because you want to serve them. It makes a huge difference. You can't please someone well when you do it grudgingly. You do it cheerfully, heartily, passionately, agreeably, energetically, immediately. That pleases them well. 
Look at what it says. It says that to us. To please them well in all things. Do you, do you mean Paul? Titus, I'm sure he wrote back an email so fast. He didn't even finish the epistle. He wrote back an email. But what if it's something that the people don't want to do? What if it's that job that everybody dreads? What if it's overtime on a Friday night when, I, when they were going to take their wife out for supper? Please them well in all things is the order. You know, when there's a limitation to put on all things, we'll put one on it. Do we have a limitation to put on the words all things? What if a master tries to get you to sin? Should you do that? What if he wants you to steal some secret from a competitor? What if you worked for a competitor in the past and he wants you to disclose a list of customers? Should you do all those things? No, those are stealing. But everything that a boss asks you on the job that doesn't run up against the commandment of the Bible, please them well in it. It says that in verse 9. It says in verse 9, not answering again. Do you know what words you cannot use on the job? But. Why? But, 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 but. Why do you think he's the boss? Because you're too dumb to know why he wants it done that way. And if you say, well, I'm an exception to that rule. Well, you certainly are an exception. Then you're an exception to the Bible. God doesn't care if a boss makes a bad decision and you have to pay for it and the company profits go down because of it. Every boss is going to make bad decisions. The nature of authority is that it's imperfect, but it's to be obeyed. Because imperfect authority is better than no authority. If there's no authority in the world, it's anarchy. No president's perfect. No husband's perfect. No father's perfect. Every man who expects to work for a perfect boss, I want to interview his wife and children. I'll tear him to shreds. And you'd be able to tear me to shreds. But I'll tell you one thing, you're not going to catch me in the inconsistency of expecting my wife and children to follow me, right or wrong, in, in matters of Christian liberty. And I'm not going to do that to those in authority over me. That's what we've got to do. And so it says, not answering again. I don't want to do that one. So-and-so hasn't done that job in a month. It's their turn. That's answering again. Not allowed. Not allowed if you're going to adorn the doctrine of God our Savior in all things. It says in verse 10, not purloining. What's purloining? It's a word we don't use much anymore. It's one of the forgotten sins of the 21st century. It means small thefts from work. Petty thefts. It means when you take a tool home. When you work a job that has tools. It means you take office supplies home when you work a job that has office supplies laying around. It means making personal phone calls and using time that way. It's small thefts. It's not necessarily robbing the till. It's not necessarily stealing in large quantities. It's the little ones. It's pilfering. Words we don't even know anymore. Because everyone does it. If everyone does it, does that mean you can do it? No, because everyone does it, it gives you a glorious opportunity for evangelism. To the glory of God. That you will not take small thefts from your employer. Not purloining. That's what the word means. Go home, look it up. Not purloining. And here's the contrast, but showing all good fidelity. Which means that you can be trusted and you are faithful when the boss gives things into your hands. All good fidelity. When you are handling financial transactions, you can be trusted that every cent is going to be accounted for. That's what a Christian ought to do. And by doing that, they can adorn the doctrine of God, our Savior. And I'm supposed to speak, exhort, and rebuke this with all authority. I have no authority but from what the Lord Jesus Christ. Let's live this.
You know, in speaking to my children this morning, with the Sunday morning devotion time that we have to get ready for this service, I wish I could go back to the bank. I had a very good reputation. But I wish I could go back and polish it and be better for the Lord Jesus Christ. I told them an event or two that still shames me to this day that I could have glorified the Lord Jesus Christ better. They knew I was a Christian. They confronted me about it sometimes. But I can't go back. But you get to go there tomorrow. I wish I could go in your place. In the sense of this lesson right here. I mean that with all my heart. Because there are some things I'd go back and I would do differently. Oh, they would see the Lord Jesus Christ every day perfectly without any fog on the mirror, if you know what I mean. Sometimes there was steam in the bathroom and they couldn't see Jesus Christ clearly on that mirror. And I wish I could go back. I can't. Aren't you excited about going to work tomorrow? Listen, if I could move Monday morning up till right now, I'd quit. But since it's not until tomorrow, I'm going to keep on preaching. This excites me. Titus 2, 9 and 10. There they are. I'm supposed to preach them. Come over now to 1 Peter chapter 2. 1 Peter chapter 2. If anybody's saying to themselves, if you're taking this long on the passages that aren't Ephesians chapter 6, how long is Ephesians 6 going to take? I don't know. Oh, this is, this is, this is, this is the gospel. This is what Paul and Peter preached. Yes, there were other things with it. But you know, I love the Bible. We are not, we are not distracted so that every other sermon or every third sermon or every month we have a sermon on opposing abortion so that we stand and demonstrate on street corners at abortion clinics. That's somebody that was misled in the wrestling flesh and blood. The second service is going to take care of them. Here we're told what to do. It's our own problems. It's not other people's problems. What are we going to do on the job? First Peter chapter 2. Now I read to you verses 11 and 12 to start the service earlier this morning. When I, when I beseeched you dear, as dearly beloved that you're pilgrims and strangers in the earth and that you're to live in such a way to have an honest lifestyle before the world that while they may accuse you of being an evildoer because you're a Christian, yet they glorify God because of your good works. Here's one of the good works. The first good works is obeying the civil government. That's in verses 13 through 17. But I come down to verse 18. Servants. There's the fifth time in the epistles. Servants. Be subject to your masters with all fear. Not only to the good and gentle, but also to the froward. For this is thankworthy. If a man for conscience toward God endure grief, suffering, wrongfully. For what glory is it if when ye be buffeted for your faults, ye shall take it patiently? But if when ye do well and suffer for it, ye take it patiently, this is acceptable with God. And the rest of that chapter goes on to lift up Jesus Christ as the great example who went to the cross. I would say that that was pretty poor treatment by a boss. Going to the cross for our sins. The rest of that chapter sets Jesus up as the standard of submitting to wrongdoing. The lesson of this passage right here is this. We are told to be obedient 
and subject, not just to good and gentle masters. If it's a good and gentle master, it's like a wife claiming she's submissive when her husband only asks her to do things that she wants to do. That's a vacation. That's not subjection. When your boss is good and gentle, would you mind, and if you don't want to, you don't have to take the trash out, but, but would you mind, I'll tomorrow, would you mind doing it today? No, that's a good and gentle boss. That's an exception to the rule, and it ought to be. You know, the Bible tells us about bosses. Jesus Christ, in one of his lessons, said, when a servant has worked all day in the field, he, he, he started at sunup, and he worked all day through the heat of the day, and he worked until the sun was setting. I mean, he is worn out. When he comes home, does the master of the house say, hey, I know you've had a rough day. Why don't you sit in the lazy boy and I'll go fix supper for you? What did the Lord Jesus Christ say? When he gets home at the end of the day, he says, hey, I'm hungry. Hurry up and fix supper for me. That's authority. And that's work. And do you know what? You know what the Bible tells us? Before I get to the end, and here I go jumping to my conclusion already, the Lord has said that a man who serves his master like that, the Lord will reward him with eternity in heaven. The Lord will reward him in this life. And the Bible says that if a person ever did that consistently, the master is going to reward him. He that keepeth the fig tree shall eat the fruit thereof. A servant that conducts himself wisely, Proverbs tells us, will be given a piece of the action and included in the will of that master when he dies. He'll be given an inheritance among his own sons if a man works the way the Bible tells us to work. All you young men, success is fruit hanging on a piece of tree, on a, success is a piece of fruit hanging on a tree, and the step ladder to reach it is the Word of God. Amen. Climb the step ladder of the book of Proverbs and these passages I'm reading right now. Pick and eat. The rest of the world, as they get lazier and more rebellious and more cantankerous and demand more rights and demand more privileges, you can stand out even more and more different from them. It is so hard to manage people today because they are so rebellious, so lazy, and so accusatory. They're spreading rumors about you all the time. It's difficult to be a manager. I, I grieve for anyone who has to manage people today. But if you make yourselves easy to manage by fulfilling what the Bible says, your master will promote you and take care of you the best he possibly can because you make his life so easy. Those are the rules of the Bible. That isn't Jonathan Crosby's opinion. The whole book of Proverbs teaches that. The hand of the diligent shall be made fat. Seest thou a man diligent in his business? He shall not stand before mean men. He'll stand before kings. You can overcome anything in the way of not being liked in the job, being too young, being the wrong sex, being whatever, by applying yourself diligently. Those are just excuses for lazy people. You apply yourself and you'll go someplace. This lesson right here in 1 Peter 2.18 is powerful. Servants, be subject to your masters with all fear, not only to the good and gentle, but also to the froward. A froward man is a wicked man, a naughty man, a corrupt, perverse, obnoxious man. He doesn't keep his word. He treats you miserably. He pushes you around. He expects more than is reasonable. This is thankworthy. Verse 19, if a man for conscience toward God endured grief, Suffering wrongfully. 
Notice it doesn't say, when you suffer wrongfully, go on strike. When you suffer wrongfully, go and turn the rest of the employees against your boss. It says, when you're suffering wrongfully, enduring grief, because you have a conscience toward God, you have done something that is thankworthy. That should be praised in the church of Jesus Christ, and it will be praised in heaven by the Lord Jesus Christ Himself. That is thankworthy. When you have worked for a good and gentle boss, you haven't done anything thankworthy. The wicked do that. The wicked all want a paycheck. This is something they don't do. And it's something you can do. Don't, don't worry. There's a payday coming here and there that will take care of you and make up the difference. The apostle goes on to say in verse 20, what glory is it? You're not a glorious employee if you just work for good and gentle bosses. What glory is it if when ye be buffeted for your faults, ye shall take it patiently? Oh, I've just been picked on at work. Why? Well, he told me I wasn't producing enough. Well, are you, are you producing enough or not? If he says you're not producing enough, then you're not. You say, well, what if his expectations are too high? Then go quit and find some little lady that will employ you. You say, you sound like you're only on the, the side of masters. When I'm in Ephesians 6, 5, 6, 7, and 8, I am only on the side of masters. That's correct. Verse 9 is for masters. There's the 5. Now help me. I have, I have a short-term memory problem. Where did we just go? I want the first passage. Ephesians chapter 6. Second passage. Colossians 3. Third passage. 1 Timothy 6. Titus 2. 1 Peter 2. And there are the five New Testament epistles about the importance of working on the job. Now listen, when you preach those passages as they're worded, they don't need a whole lot of interpretation, hardly any at all. If you preach those as they're worded, people don't like that. Your church shrinks. Now if we were to preach about, if you once a month will go and stand and hold a placard in front of some abortion clinic, it's exciting. This is not so exciting, but it is if your heart's in the right place. Amen. It's, I want to get on the job right now and do a better job than I did last week. Let's come to Ephesians 6. It should be easy now, shouldn't it? We hope so. Ephesians 6 should be easy. Servants. The Christian religion is so practical. Right. Here it is addressing servants. Remember... The first three chapters were dedicated to what God did for the Ephesians. So there, there weren't any duties in Ephesians chapter 1, 2, and 3. Very few. So they were only indirect. It wasn't until we got to chapter 4 that the apostles starts teaching the Ephesian church what they were to do for the Lord because of what He had done for them. And when we get to chapter 5, verse 22, it's wives. When we get to verse 25, it's husbands. When we get to 6, 1, it's children. When we get to 6.4, it's fathers. When we get to 6.5, it's servants. In the Bible, there were bond servants and free servants. I've already explained that to you. Um, you can go read about it. You can read about their freedom. You can read about the year of Jubilee. You can read about how after seven years, if a man wanted to stay with his master forever, they would just take him over to the doorpost and drill a hole through his ear. And that wasn't foreigners. That was Hebrews' servants. You know, if a man, all the rules for servants are contained in the Old Testament, if for that, 
city, for that nation, state, church that Israel was, the rules are back there. We don't have time, we don't need to go back there, but I want you to know what the words mean when it says bond or free in verse 8, when it says God has no respect of persons in another place. Bond or free is used several times in the New Testament referring to a bondservant, which would be a slave, your property. If you're a bondservant, you're a slave, you're a slave and you're property. That's why the Bible says, thou shalt not covet thy neighbor's house, property. Thou shalt not covet thy neighbor's wife. Yep. Sorry, women's livers. Thou shalt not covet thy neighbor's manservant nor his maidservant because there is property. Exodus chapter 21 tells about buying them, but then it also tells you how you have to treat them, which we'll get to in verse 9. Verse 9 is just as full as verses 5, 6, 7, and 8. It just summarizes it in a, in a very strict and straightforward manner. Bond and free. You know, 1 Corinthians chapter 7, the apostle, when he's talking about the marriage state, he then brings in the employment state to make this point. Every man should abide in the calling wherewith he was called. Right. When you are converted, this is to the, to the Corinthians, Corinthian church, when, when the Lord converted you, when the gospel came to you and converted you to be a disciple of the Lord Jesus Christ, it shouldn't matter to you whether you're bond or free, whether you're a servant or a master. It, that, that doesn't matter in God's sight. He doesn't care. So be content with wherever God calls you and don't try to change it because there's no reason to change it. You're not closer to God or better for God if you're in a different position. And that's taught in 1 Corinthians chapter 7 to just go ahead and stay in the calling that you're called. We could read more about bosses. We could read more about employees. We could go to the Old Testament. We could milk the book of Proverbs. But we don't need to do that. We can just look at this language right now with the help of the other New Testament passages and know what we, a Gentile church, should do tomorrow when we report on the job to our bosses or report at home on our computer to our boss. Servants, be obedient to them that are your masters according to the flesh. Your master in the flesh does not have a thing to do with your relationship with God. And you know, that would be a very ignorant person that thought because he was under a master in the flesh that he had a master between him and God. There is none. There is no respect of persons with God. It wouldn't matter how low your job is in this life. God is still your Father in heaven. And He actually says, don't care for it. Don't worry about your job in this world. You're still my son. You ought to read that in 1 Corinthians 7. Maybe I ought to take you to it. I'll read you the words, if you can turn if you wish. He that is called in the Lord, being a servant, is the Lord's freeman. Likewise also, he that is called, being free, is Christ's servant. None of it makes any difference in your relationship with the Lord. Your job is the most visible authority relationship that you relate to in life. You reflect God's doctrine more clearly, more thoroughly, on the job than all others put together. You know, even when it comes to April 15th, you do it in private, don't you? How many of you take your tax return to work and pass it out? How many of you, how many of you tape it on the window of your car so everybody can read it? That's private. You know, sometimes your driving isn't so private. What, a, what an opportunity. Let's just look at these verses and quickly go through them. Servants, be obedient to them that are your masters according to the flesh. That master's authority over your life extends no further than your employment relationship. With fear and trembling. 
Fear and trembling is how you should respond to your boss. If he tells you to do something, you want to do it. When he calls you into his office, you don't go in there as an equal. You go in there with fear and trembling because you want to please him. It is not his person that makes him the source of fear and trembling. It's his office. It's his position. It's where God put him in the order, orderliness of this world. For this world to get along together, there are chiefs and there are Indians. There are bosses and there are those that work for the bosses. There are masters and there are servants. So you go with fear and trembling. Yes, sir. Yes, sir. You want to please him. You care about pleasing him. You even worry about pleasing him with fear and trembling is how you should approach your boss. Do you know how hard this is to preach this and get you to understand it in the 21st century? Everyone's taught that you're equal to your boss. They come up with management ideas of consensus management which are ridiculous. Why in the world would you go to servants to ask them about how to run the company when they don't even have a clue about the big picture of capital, risk, costs, profits, shareholders, and so forth. When a guy puts forth his best effort to push the green button before the red button on a press, why would you want to sit him down to meeting and ask him how to run the company and what decisions they ought to make today that will affect the company five years from now? You want to invite him into a strategic planning session? He should be thankful and go to work and cheerfully punch that green button before that red button and do it as fast as he possibly can and keep his hands out of the press. I was hoping a young man named Brian Hopkins might be here with us this morning. Do all of you remember when he got his arm caught in that press at Michelin and it twisted his arm up like a pretzel? I grabbed his arm last Sunday when I met him Sunday afternoon eating eating lunch and he looked at it, and he's got, Nathan, you saw it. Did you see those scars all over the place where they had to sew that thing back together? But it's, it's there. The, the body's amazing, isn't it? You can get your arm in a press, and it just twisted that thing all up like a pretzel. And they put that thing back together, and it's normal. Just got a few little reminders on it. A servant should just be happy with punching the green button and the red button. And when the job foreman comes around and says, I want to see you after work, you know, he should, with fear and trembling, he should obey. And when he's told, you know, you've been doing 500 parts an hour for the last couple of months, but we want you to hit 600 parts an hour. He should do his very best to do that. He shouldn't answer again and say 600 is impossible. He should do the very best he can to learn how to do 600. Get his hands a little faster. You know, maybe squeeze the rubber ball at night. Maybe see if he can learn how to juggle at night so he can get his hands faster. Fear and trembling. It's a totally different attitude than what this world teaches. This world teaches you to tell your boss off. Refuse to do what he wants you to do. If you don't like his attitude, you know, people today will say, I don't like your attitude. What does that have to do with it? That's the forward master from 1 Peter chapter 2, if it's even forward. Because it probably isn't. It's just that they're all sissified wimps today when it comes to real work and real labor for a master in the Bible sense of the word. I'm not making up any of these words. I didn't write the King James Bible. God wrote this book, and you have it in your lap, and you can go home and you can define these words yourself, but you know that this language is very strict, very strong, and it's very contrary to our generation. We have a choice. 
We can modify the Word of God until it fits our generation. And we can call ourselves a church. Or we can take the language of the Word of God and conform our lives to it. And that's what I'm going to do. There's plenty of churches out there that will never have a sermon like this that will let you do anything you want to your boss. But we are going to conform our lives to this book. With fear and trembling. That is the attitude you ought to have towards your boss. In singleness of your heart as unto Christ. That singleness of heart means one motive. My one motive on the job today is not to please my boss man. My one motive, my one goal, my one purpose today is to please the Lord. The Lord gave me this job. I'm going to answer to the Lord for this job. The Lord is watching me while I work right now on this job. I'm going to do it the best I can with a single heart to the Lord. I'm going to count that cash back to that customer as to the Lord. I'm going to install that piece of glass so that there is no air noise nor water leak as to the Lord. The Lord may be the one driving this car, and I don't want any air noise or water coming through. And I don't want to leave some of that black tar on the driver's seat or a little bit on the back side of the steering wheel because I'm going to do it with a single heart as to the Lord. If you did it for men, you would not keep up those standards. The greatest work ethic in the history of the world is right here in the Bible. It is not a nationality. The Germans think it's a nationality. It isn't. They're a pitiful wreck. Show me the superiority of Germany to the other nations in Europe. They're no superior. They're not superior. Check them out by any measure you want to give them. The differences between the nations of Europe are marginal. The work ethic is right here. You know, when you've got a single heart, that means there's no other motives. If, if the boss man gives you a request and he does it with a bad attitude, the world's productivity goes down because they want to punish him and they're ticked off. But a Christian, it doesn't go down because he's still got a single heart. When the boss takes a week's vacation, the Christian continues to work at the same level when the boss was there because he's got a single heart. I am preaching utopia. Karl Marx thought he could figure out utopia with something this stupid. From each according to his ability, to each according to his need. How well did that work? If it wasn't for America feeding all those communist countries, they all would have starved to death. From each according to his ability. That means a heart surgeon ought to be putting forth that intellectual ability and hand-eye coordination that God gave him as much as he possibly can, and yet he's only going to get paid two each according to his need. We'll give you a hundred bucks a month. Be thankful. The state loves you. (laughs) You want to be a communist? That's what they teach. I love the Word of God. I love it. I'm preaching utopia. Karl Marx didn't know how to get there. He ruined nation after nation that that drank from that well. Let's drink from the Word of God and conform our lives to it. If you don't think, if you doubt me, then write Tanya this afternoon and ask her how much she's making. Ask her what a surgeon in Moscow makes and what the cab driver down on the street makes. It'll thrill you that the Bible is true because they make the same. Why should a surgeon get paid more than a cab driver? Duh. You know, you say, where'd that come from? God blinded their eyes. 
Karl Marx, what nation did he come out of in Europe? Germany. What is Germany known for? The most anti-God sentiments over the last 200 years of any nation of Europe. This is utopia. If servants were to work this way and a boss was to work the way verse 9 is going to tell him to work, what a wonderful relationship. What productivity we could have. But I'll tell you something, America is great. And one of its reasons is for a long time, this Bible was preached in pulpits much like today. And men went to work on the job and they served their masters. And they weren't revolting and they weren't, there weren't uprises all the time. Yes, we have some labor unions and they stink. And wherever there's a labor union, you can see the inefficiencies. They're visible to the whole marketplace. And those industries are going to be exported to other nations in the world that don't believe in labor unions. I'm from Detroit, Michigan. I know more about labor unions than you do. Why do you think Ford, Chrysler, and GM are on the ropes right now? Because little guys that punched a green button and punched a red button were paid wages that they did not deserve. Henry Ford had the best idea on how to deal with with uh, strikes. Yeah, go read about it. I'll tell you just a hint. He had 500 bodyguards, and they used weapons. You say, defend that from a Bible. Exodus 21, read it at your leisure. You know what the Bible told, Masters? If you beat your servant, and he makes it to the 25th hour, you're free. Because the Lord said, I know you didn't beat him to kill him. You just beat him because he was a lazy bum. If you were trying to kill him, he wouldn't have lasted 25 hours. And you say, how in the world does God reason that way? This is how God reasons, and he tells us how he reasoned. I know that he is his money. No man ever has destroyed his own assets. That is a general rule that God used, and he explains that to us as to why he would have a rule like that. Well, Henry Ford tried to enforce that himself, and our nation would not back him up. But I'm thankful for a president that we had, and whether you agree with him or disagree with him on many of the things he did, I loved Ronald Reagan. I remember walking through the lobby of the executive offices of Michigan National Bank in whatever year that was. It was in the early 80s and hearing the noise come over the speaker that Ronald Reagan had just told all of the air traffic controllers of this country to take a long walk on a short pier over hell. Oh, I loved him. I'd I'd have hugged the air right out of his lungs that day. It was so precious. Oh, so precious. They thought they had an important job. They thought their job was so important that if they threatened the U.S. government that we're going to walk off our job if you don't give us what we want, that there's no way the government could respond. Well, Ronald Reagan responded, walk. And they hired replacements. And I want you you to know if you go back and look at the air traffic near near misses, near accidents that occurred over the next couple of years, they were fewer than when those lazy, revolting anarchists were on the job. Go check it out. Do any of you remember that day when Ronald Reagan did that? Thank you, Lord, for presidents like that. Loved them. Oh, did they all know that this Christian loved Ronald Reagan in the office that day? Oh, you think I could keep it under? They'd have had to send me home for a week. Oh, I love that. That was, that was biblical. Except they should have sold their houses sold their kids into slavery, and taken the proceeds just to cover 
them and the replacements that they had to hire for air traffic controllers. I mean, it could have been a little better, but Ronald Reagan did well. We commend you, sir, wherever you are. As unto Christ. This is a work ethic. Singleness of heart. You know, I tried with my children when we had a restaurant. I'm, I'm not trying to fill up time right now with, with stories. I'm not a storyteller. I'm not even good at it. You, you all found that out recently. So especially those of the couples retreat. When we had the restaurant, you know, every sandwich is supposed to be done a certain way. There's a manual that's this thick. You know, it tells you when to sneeze, how to sneeze, and what kind of a Kleenex to use when you sneeze. But it tells you that the mustard on an original sandwich is to be four one-quarter inch rings on that bun. I mean, that is just the way it's supposed to be so that every bite that you take, you get about two inches, one-quarter inch wide of mustard. Now, if you just come in there and take that mustard bottle and take a knife, take a knife and cut off the end of the, uh, the squirt nozzle to make it a little larger than a quarter of an inch, then you just take it and go... You can do sandwiches a little faster. But what you've got is you've got a two-inch blob on each four-inch bun. And so the customer eating that sandwich, until he gets to the blob, he thinks there's no mustard in the sandwich, and so it has lost its, its overall flavor because its flavor was dependent on the combination of the ingredients. And then once he hits the blob, the top of his head blows off. Especially when that was deli mustard. Does any, do any of my children remember Dr. Paul Runberg, a dentist who came in every single day for his Dijon chicken? And how a couple of times we got a little free with that Dijon mustard? And he came back. The, te- the tears were coming down his cheeks. Now what's all that for? Singleness of heart. Do you know what my, my father tried to teach me? And you've heard my testimony that I didn't listen all the time. But whether you're cutting the grass, do it under the Lord. What if the Lord's going to check the yard? Then that means the corners should be cut. And when you're doing the sandwich, I would try to tell the children, how do we know that the Lord's not going to be in line? I know the Lord wasn't going to be in line literally and physically, but that's a, that's a strong motive for working right and it, to do that just the right way. You say, but you were slower. Yes, I was. I was a little slower because I wanted four quarter-inch rings and you guys wanted two one-inch rings. But the difference is to slow down just a little bit, we were doing it the right way. All of that is to say, if we were to work the way that verse 5 describes, that is the highest work ethic there is in the world with a single heart, one motive, to do it unto the Lord, as unto Christ. As if Jesus Christ is the one that's going to give us our QSC audit. Quality, service, cleanliness audit in a restaurant. Or if the Lord Jesus Christ was going to be the one taking that sandwich. I used to tell the kids as they made that sandwich, remember, a customer is going to pick that sandwich up in two hands and take it apart one inch at a time right in front of his eyes looking at it. If you use too small of a tomato and it's only on one side, they're going to pick that thing up. They're going to take it apart with their mouth. You know what I'm talking about. Taking one bite out of it, and they're going to pull it away every time. And if you haven't done your job right, there's going to be a tomato on the left and no tomato on the right. It's going to taste different. It's going to look terrible. What if that's the Lord looking at it? 
What about when you lay side? Don't you like those three-inch gaps, six-inch gaps, seven-inch gaps between pieces of side that go down in the yard? I saw a yard like that recently. That's a terrible job. Christians shouldn't do that. Verse 6, not with eye service as men-pleasers. That is just further elaboration on the singleness of heart of verse 5. Not with eye service. I can remember for a long time, I used to read those words, not with eye service as men-pleasers. Oh, the Lord wants me to work as hard when the boss is around as when he's not around. Well, that's an indirect consequence, but that's not what the verse is teaching. What the verse is teaching is don't get mixed up of trying to please a man when your real goal is to please the Lord. You're not to be a man pleaser. You're to be a Christ pleaser. Now, we're to please men at the same time. Because back there in Titus chapter 2, it says, please them well in all things. But you are pleasing them to please Him. And the Lord is always first because that's the single heart in verse 5. Verse 6, not with eye service as men pleasers, but as the servants of Christ doing the will of God from the heart. That is a repeat of verse 5 in different words to keep emphasizing the point. One motive, one reason, one goal when you're at work. You are a servant of Jesus Christ and you're doing God's will from the heart. You work hard because it's God's will, not because it may get you a promotion. The promotion will be an automatic, obvious consequence of you obeying God. The promotions will come. The Bible promises them. In the exceptional events that they don't come, the Lord will take care of you in some other way. But you don't work just to get the promotion. You work to serve the Lord Jesus Christ. That's the highest motive. If you're working for promotion when the boss is not around, you'll let things slip. If you're working for a promotion and he goes ahead and promotes someone else, you'll let things slip. This is incredible. These words are incredible. They've got us on a straight and narrow way. You know, it is the wide gate and the broad way that leads to hell that describes everybody else's work habits. This is the straight and narrow way. It's always as unto the Lord, doing the will of God from the heart. Not just outwardly, but in our heart, cheerful, glad, excited and thankful for our job and doing the very best we can. As unto the Lord. Verse 7, with good will, doing service, as to the Lord and not to men. Now, it said that three times. It says, as unto Christ in verse 5. It says, doing the will of God in verse 6. And it says, as to the Lord in verse 7. Would that be redundant if you were the English teacher, brother? That's a little redundant. That's repetitive to a waste. Is it a waste? This is the Word of God, brethren. This is the Word of God. It's doing it to the Lord with goodwill. Now, how does Paul define goodwill in Colossians chapter 3 and verse 23? Doing it heartily, heartily, as unto the Lord, with goodwill, cheerfulness, agreeableness, a cooperative spirit, an eager spirit, a zealous spirit, a how high, sir, spirit. That's with goodwill, doing service as to the Lord and not to men. There it is again. You're not doing it to men. You're doing it to the Lord. When you walk out of here tomorrow, when you walk out of here today, hopefully I won't take so long that it'll be tomorrow, but when you go to work tomorrow, when you go to work tomorrow, this is an opportunity to the Lord, to the Lord, to the Lord, not to men, not man pleasers, not to men. Verse eight, knowing that whatsoever good thing any man doeth, the same shall he receive of the Lord, whether he be bond or free. Do you know what a bond servant would feel like hearing those verses? A slave? 
An Israelite slave, a Philistine slave, an Egyptian slave, an Ephesian slave. Do you know what they would feel like hearing those words? There would be the temptation to be hopeless. That's the fiery dart of the devil. There would be a temptation to be hopeless. You mean I've got to obey him cheerfully and please him well in all things and not steal even even to feed myself? I'm supposed to do all that? Here's the answer. Knowing that whatsoever good thing any man doeth, the same shall he receive the Lord, whether he be bond or free. An American looks at those first three verses and says, if I'm only doing it to the Lord, I'll never get a promotion. How will I get promoted unless I'm trying to please my boss? Knowing that whatsoever good thing any man doeth, the same shall he receive of the Lord, whether he be bond or free. That eighth verse is the foundation for verses 5, 6, and 7. Knowing. That is something you're supposed to know while you're going through verses 5, 6, and 7. Do you understand? That eighth verse is what you're supposed to know so that you can obey 5, 6, and 7, knowing that the Lord will take care of you. If anybody were to work like verses 5, 6, and 7, the boss will take care of them. You say, you haven't met the bosses I've worked for. No, and I haven't measured you on the job either. So since neither of those facts are true, then we're going to go with the Word of God. Is that, is that okay with you? Because I'd like to see your job performance if you think that somebody won't promote you when you work hard. That's contrary to the Bible. It's contrary to nature. Right. It's contrary to America. It's contrary to the blessings that we have to work hard and get ahead. But that is not why we work hard. We work hard to please the Lord Jesus Christ to establish masters and servants and expects us to give a testimony that we have a conscience toward God by the way we work on the job cheerfully, even when that boss is cruel or stupid. I've never said bosses are always wise. I said they make lots of mistakes, and so what? Let them make a mistake. We're going to go down with them in that company if they make too many mistakes. Just like every soldier has to know that when he goes to combat. If that general calls for the wrong orders and sends us to the wrong place, we could be annihilated. But guess what? A good soldier goes. And a good Christian goes. Thank you, Lord, for your precious, precious word about employees serving Masters, it doesn't matter if your boss is a Christian. Remember 1 Timothy 6, 1 and 2? If he's a Christian, you just got to give him a little better. And not think that you are equals because you're both in the same church and you both get to tip the cup at the communion supper at the same time. It's hard sometimes. But that's what the Bible teaches. It doesn't matter if it's a man or a woman. You say, well, i got a woman boss. You're in the wrong job. <laughs> But while you're in the wrong job, you ought to be working hard. I just said that for the benefit of whoever would raise that as a question. That shouldn't be a question. You've got a female boss, you should work just as hard. What if it's a Muslim? I don't owe a Muslim nothing. I hate Islam. I hate the Koran. Are those your excuses for, not, for being lazy? The Lord doesn't care about any of those things. Serve your master well. We have a master in heaven, and he'll take care of everything else. Amen. Verse 9, And ye masters... Can you imagine a master that had a whole bunch of servants sitting in the church at Ephesus? It's just like what a husband does when he has Ephesians 5, 22 through 24 preached to his wife. He starts thinking, oh, I love this church. Go for it. You can go an extra half hour today. Just pounder. Pounder. And then the preacher comes along and does the kids. Take another hour. Work those kids over. They've been brats recently. Work them over. Put them in their place. Oh, I love that point can't say amen because I'll know that I'm thinking about them, but whoa, I love that. And then a master thinks, 
This is how the Lord arranges the Bible. The one under authority, then the one in authority. He tells the one under authority how they're supposed to conduct themselves toward the one in authority, but then he puts the responsibilities on the one in authority in every case. It's a, I love the order of God's Word. This is how it ought to be preached. Now that we tell servants how to operate and treat their masters, the Bible addresses the masters. And so that master that got very excited with verses 5 through 8, thinking, boy, our productivity is going to jump tomorrow. We're going to double productivity tomorrow when these boys, when these boys get in there. I'm going to get my pound of flesh out of them. I think I'm going to call for overtime right now because they're going to be working extra hard. I'll work them a few extra hours. I'll cut back their pay. They're going to be happy because the Bible says to be content with your wages. Oh, wrong. Wrong. That is such a sinful attitude. And here goes the Lord and ye masters do the same things unto them. Can you believe the language? Do the same things unto them. Now, does that mean that a master has to obey a servant? No, not at all. It doesn't mean that whatsoever. That all things is very limited. It's limited to the things that a master does toward an employee, but they are to do the same things that have just been listed in 5, 6, 7, 8. Singleness of heart, as unto the Lord, doing the will of God from the heart, doing good will. They're to be kind. They're to be gentle. Yes, they still have to enforce authority, but they are to do the same things. They're to do it with a single heart. The entire time is not how much I can get out of that guy. It's I want to please the Lord in representing God toward that employee. Do the same things toward the servants. Ye masters, do the Can you, are you with me? Are you thinking about being in the church at Ephesus and having an epistle from Paul read where verses 5 through 8, you are getting so excited and your balloon is this big and then Paul in just about six words puts a pen right in it. And ye masters, do the same things unto them. You're to do it as unto the Lord, as unto Jesus Christ. Not, Not as man abusers. Look at what it says. Forbearing, threatening. You are not to conduct yourself in an overbearing, intimidating threatening way. You're not to go around thinking that you're some king honcho and you're going to do it by yelling, shouting, calling names, and threatening employees. That is not how godly masters work. Forbearing threatening, not doing threatening, not putting up with threatening. You don't do that. Knowing that your master also is in heaven. Now, brethren, in verse 8, the master isn't mentioned there, it's mentioned in Colossians chapter 3. An employee should remember he has a master in heaven because the master in heaven is going to pay him for being obedient and faithful. The master is to remember he has a master in heaven, not that he's going to pay him in this context for being good and faithful, but if he gets overbearing with his employees, God's going to get overbearing with him. Do you know what the Bible says? To the froward, thou wilt show thyself froward. God will be froward to men who are froward to other men. And ye masters, do the same things unto them. Your conduct should be governed 100% of the time out of motive toward God and pleasing Him as being a benevolent master as God is benevolent to you. Forbearing threatening, not using threatening and intimidation as your means of managing a business or managing men, knowing that your master also is in heaven. You also have a master in heaven. Neither is there any respect of persons with him. He does not care that you're a master. He does not consider you one whit better at all than the lowest of your servants. And he will treat you accordingly if you abuse that servant. This is how employment works. It's not that servants 
get to tell a master where to go when he doesn't treat them right. Servants do not have that right. Servants have one right when they're free servants, and that's to quit. Otherwise, they're to obey and submit. What is the check and balance on a master from getting abusive? It's the Word of God. And where the Word of God goes, employment relationships have been wonderful. Where this book goes, this is what saves men from abuse. It's not those under authority deciding when they're going to throw off the one in authority. It's the Word of God governing the one in authority. Do you understand that difference? It's not a right of servants to take verse 9 and apply it to their masters. Servants shouldn't even know about verse 9. Because it's none of their business. Verse 9 is for masters. It's God dealing with masters. Do the same things unto them. When you look back, it says, with fear and trembling, a master can operate in fear and trembling, out of fear and trembling toward God, in singleness of his heart, he only has one motive, not to get a pound of flesh, but to get a pound of glory from the God of heaven. As unto Christ, I'm looking at verse 5, every, those expressions that are describing what motivates an employee should also motivate the master, that he's always wanting to represent God and the Lord Jesus Christ on the job. He's a servant of Christ as well. He's doing the will of God from the heart. He's with good will, doing his job as to the Lord and not to men. He doesn't care what other men do. He doesn't care what management techniques are being prescribed for that particular generation. They change all the time. He wants to obey the Lord, and he does. And he's got a master in heaven that's going to reward him. In Colossians chapter 4 and verse 1, it says, Masters, give unto your servants that which is just and equal, knowing that ye also have a master in heaven. The fairness. Those of you that are in positions of supervision or management or own your own business. The fairness. The equity that you show towards your employees is what God's going to show towards you. You cheat them in any way, whether they understand it or not, or they can see it or not, there's a master in heaven that sees everything you're doing. Solomon told me in the book of Proverbs, if you see oppression in any province, marvel not at the matter. Don't marvel at the matter. The Bible is still true. If you see oppression in a province, because there is one higher than they, and that's where we put our comfort, that there is a master in heaven that will take care of unruly and froward masters. But until then, we're shown what we're supposed to do. You do have the right to quit. But let's forget all that now. Let's think about what you can do tomorrow on the job. You can shut the mouths of the world that would blaspheme our God and his doctrine. And you can adorn the doctrine of God our Savior. I hope in every single workplace, Span America included, Bilo included, Fazoli's included, BK Lounge included. I can't remember the name. There will be a living epistle of the Lord Jesus Christ working there tomorrow. In the way that they respond to their boss, in the way they respond to working conditions, with the zeal they put forth, with the cheerfulness they have, with the thankfulness you have for your job. Even when they ask you to go up to an, into an attic that's made for some five foot eight inch runt like me, and you're six foot five and you've got to squeeze yourself into an attic, 
and install some duct work. That's, that's fun work in the summer. When it's 120 degrees up there, at the, at the least, and all that dust is going up these, and you've got to put duct work around, that's tough work. But you can do it cheerfully to the Lord. You know what? The Lord sees every drop of sweat that comes from your body. And the Lord will be pleased. Let's do it cheerfully. There is no perfect master. There is no perfect company. There is no perfect job. They've all got their downfalls. They've all got their negatives. The Lord knows all that. Let's apply ourselves with diligence and praise Him with our lives. The world sees more of your performance on the job than everything else you do combined. Show them the Lord Jesus Christ. And may Jesus Christ be praised. Amen.